Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We hope that you enjoy and are blessed by this message. For more information on this and other resources, visit visionchurchci.org. This is the final session on the Well-Versed series. For those of you maybe who don't know, this book has been our text, and we've been going week by week through various topics. Uh, it's a topical book. There's 30 topics covered in here. We've been doing them not systematically, but regularly through the week by week. And uh, this will be our final one. Tonight we're going to cover uh, immigration, refugees, and terrorism, which are related uh, topics. Things that are in the news, even today was in the news again, so um, should be interesting. So as uh, as you should know, if you've been to these any of the other lessons up till now, uh, the, the way this book is structured is it takes a social topic, as is like the ones we're talking about, and then helps you give it a biblically based treatment. So you have something to say if you're discussing it with your friends or coworkers or whatever you might run into where you this topic comes up you have a, a biblical Christian perspective on the subject so it helps to uh, inform you and it helps you to give you a place of uh, comfort that you can talk intelligently about it but with a faith-based perspective uh, so uh, it's been very good I've enjoyed all the lessons we've done uh, so um, I think you might too so hopefully you did so we're going to begin with the immigration, um, and I'm going to just give you the highlights out of what the author had to say, and then we'll have, maybe I'll have, since I have actually three distinct uh, subjects, I'll give a short time after each one for some question and answer, and if there's any time left at the end, we'll sum it up uh, with any other questions. So immigration, um, immigration, uh, I think everybody knows it means transferring from one country to another country. That's the simplest way to say it. Um, so he makes the point that the entire race is made up of immigrants. Everybody in the world comes from a family of immigrants. Nobody ever lived anywhere their whole history. Um, either you moved or your parents moved or your grandparents moved or your great-great-grandparents moved. Somebody in your history moved. And so uh, everybody comes from some history of being an immigrant or the offspring of an immigrant. The other thing he made a point was that the United States has basically the most compassionate, generous history of receiving immigrants of any nation that we know of in history. There are more people who have come to the United States as immigrants. In fact, almost everyone, right, unless you're a Native American, and that, was just, that means you just immigrated before we started counting immigrants, right? So, um, Nearly everybody in the country, pretty much everybody in the country, came to the United States as an immigrant. Um, so even not counting it that way, even looking at modern times, we've, more people have come to the United States as an immigrant uh, than any other country in, in the world. Um, in fact, people, as you know, are in waiting lists to immigrate to the United States even today. So, so that's the good news. It's that... Uh, States is very open. We immigrate more people every year. Millions of people come to the United States uh, all the time. 
what we have to remember though is that a national border is what defines the country if you don't have a border you don't have a country you, you might say you do but if there's no border where's your country is it here no is it over there yes how do you know the only way you know is to draw a line and say this is it this is the border so if you don't have a border you don't know who is the citizenship and who isn't the citizenship uh, there's just no way to tell um, so a, a national border is what the government uses to establish who's in the country and who's out of the country it, it helps you decide who's visiting who's living there uh, it helps you know who should come in who should not come in it helps you understand who's visiting uh, and for what reason um, doesn't mean visitors are less important but membership <clears throat> just like a church membership would it could define your expectations about how you're who has authority in your life it defines the expectations like what resources you could expect to be have access to uh, it could define things like what privileges you might expect to have uh, or any other of those concerns where what kind of attention you should be concerned about what you should be paying attention to it all has to do with whether you live on this side of the line or that side of the line right so you can go you can go up to the I've been to Buffalo to New York a number of times and I have friends up there and when you're on the south side of the border you have certain concerns about how things work and when you're on the north side of the border you have a whole different set of concerns about how things work because you're in a different country <laughs> and so the idea of the border being important is 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 fundamental to defining a country that is who lives and who does not live in the country so that's that's the first concern we have to address because you hear some people talking about a border no borders open borders if it's open if it's completely open border it just doesn't exist because something has to define it something has to control who's in and who's not in the, the country <clears throat> probably the bottom line to what he talked about in the book was that in his opinion, United States, both parties, both Republicans and Democrats, have failed on the immigration issue. That as a nation, our government has failed, especially over the last couple of decades. Uh, both, both parties have failed when they've been in power to actually address the issue of immigration in a cohesive way. Um, maybe some of you don't know, but the United States does not have a cohesive policy of immigration what we have is individual treaties with every nation in the world so if you think about every nation in the world we have some specific agreement with them think about that how many nations are in the world over 200 right so there's over 200 treaties each one with its own details about how it works in relationship you had to think this through think of a business having 200 deals and no cohesive sales policy no no cohesive purchasing policy they just went every single deal had to be made individually with every single vendor every single customer everybody who logged into Amazon got to make their own deal on how the pricing works right how would that work for them not so good right well it doesn't work for us either as a country they have no cohesive uh, uh, immigration policy every single treaty if you're from france you have the treaty with france if you're from england there's a treaty with england and so on and so on all the way down the line that's why it's so difficult to reform because you have all these treaties and what are you going to do with them how's it going to work
So, so that's where we're at now. So that failure is the government's primary responsibility. We've talked about this a number of times. What is, a, what is the government's primary role? What is it supposed to do first and foremost? Remember? Protect the citizens. That's its primary role. Its primary role is to protect citizens, both in the international sense, protect the borders, some people invading or taking advantage of the citizens, but also protect the citizens from each other. That's why we pass laws like don't steal, right? Because we're protecting citizens from other citizens who might steal. We say that's wrong, so we consider that evil. We talked about legislating morality, remember early on. You hear people say all the time, you can't legislate morality. That's completely false. Every law is morality. Because what it means is what's right and what's wrong. That's morality. And so if you pass a law, you're saying something's right or something's wrong. That's what morality is. So every law is somebody's morality. The question is whose morality? So when, when people say you can't legislate morality, what they're really saying is, I don't want you to legislate your morality. I want you to legislate my morality. Right? That's what they mean. And so the, the fundamental reason for having laws is to protect citizens from each other. That's the fundamental reason, or protect countries from each other. It could be at the macro or the micro scale. So we say things like, you can't kill somebody. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because we believe it's wrong. It's morality. So where does our morality come from? That's a good question, right? Where does it come from? Well, originally, the morality upon which laws were based came from a Judeo-Christian understanding. All of our forefathers were Judeo-Christian believers, and they legislated the original laws, like the Constitution, based on that understanding. So they, they did things like the Ten Commandments. They didn't write the Ten Commandments in there, but that was the basis upon which they understood morality. So not stealing, not lying, not cheating, all these things came out in the laws. Okay, that's what morality says. If you go to another country, let's say you go to an Islamic country, their laws are written on their morality. Things like women are second class, not as good as men. So the laws are written to support that morality. See, so that's how it works. So what the government should have done was make sure that the borders are safe so that citizens are safe from illegal visitors, people who might come with good or bad intentions, but they might harm or not harm, but you don't know until they come. So you have to apply that, that, that morality to that. And that's, that's one of the fundamental things he talks about is because both, both parties over the years have failed to solve the immigration issue. They both tended to fall back onto sort of just party lines. So the conservative party line is be reasonable and obey the law. Okay, so if you obey the law, then you have to obey all these treaties and you have to enforce it through you know, the Homeland Security and ICE and all these kinds of things have to happen and everybody should obey the law. Okay, that sounds kind of reasonable. But the, the liberal side is no, we must be compassionate and help those in need, people who are coming in that are poor or needy or have or just want to be here or good people that sounds reasonable too does right we should do those kind of, those are both good ideas but how come there's only one side is doing one way and the other side is only, only one way there's no meeting of the minds there's no discussion 
Um, there's, there's a failure of the government in both cases to come to a reasonable solution to the issues. So what happens is we effectively don't enforce our laws. Now there's a word for, he, he gives the legal term for this, it's destitute, which means a law's on the books, but nobody actually pays any attention to it, including the enforcement. So take, for example, let's say you, that you found out that in Walton County, they never enforce speed limits, never. And they're not going to. And that's what you learn, that that's the truth. How many think you would be very careful to go by the speed limit? If you knew for a fact they weren't going to enforce it. Well, that's what happens if you put a law on the books and then you, you make it clear in some way that it's not going to be enforced, you make, make the law of no effect. Because a law that's not enforced is of no effect. People generally just pay no attention to it if the enforcers pay no attention to it. Make sense? I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's what happens. And so the fact that we have a failed immigration system has become clear, especially in certain parts of our country, it's become clear so no one pays attention to those laws. They, they've become irrelevant um, because we're not actually using them for what they're intended to be. Now for the church, you know, I'm talking about our government, but for the church this isn't a problem really. Um, it's not a church problem. Our calling is to minister to people and to love people and to bring them to Christ and, and all these kinds of things. So the fact that people are ignoring the law and coming to the country illegally doesn't really affect the church's mission. In fact, in some ways it helps it a little bit because we actually get to reach more people and serve people and things like that. So in some ways it can be a positive for the church. But for the government, for the nation, it's not a positive because what it does is it makes the borders of no effect. And we just discussed that borders are necessary the nation and make it effective. Now he goes through what he calls the Wesleyan Church Principles on page 206. I'm not going to go through this with you just for the sake of time, but look at those on 206. He gives the principles that the Wesleyan Church put out that are, they're not specifically about immigration, they're about how the government works, but they apply to immigration very directly. And uh, keep in mind that the Wesleyan Church was one of the churches that were very strong in the abolitionist movement. They helped run the, the Underground Railroad and all these kinds of things. So they have a great history with, with being very compassionate and even civil disobedience and all these kinds of things. Yet they're putting forth these principles of how to respond uh, legally uh, to a law that's somehow not actually working. Okay, So he, he goes on and talks about that, uh, the failure of the, of, the, of the legal system to address immigration in a reasonable way. So he then gives some advice or opportunities or ways we can respond. Okay, so let me tell you what those are. Well, before I do that, let's talk about the, the appeal. So progressives appeal, progressives are liberals, right? That's what I mean by that. So progressives generally appeal to emotions. They say, you know, these people are hurting, they're poor, they, they're just trying to make a living, which is generally true, right? I mean, we're not saying that's wrong, but that's their appeal, that these are good people in general. But what they don't talk about is, what about the ones that aren't good people? How do you control for that?
if you're not controlling the borders. And so the issue is not that there shouldn't be more people coming in. Maybe we should have better policies about letting people in easier. That might be a true. Or have better policies on how to evaluate people so that we get good people in. But how do you keep the bad people out? I mean, EDA gave some stories where he went down to the border and, and uh, talked to some of the agents and different people at the border about what's going on. And they're saying it's not just the fact that, that people are getting in, but who's getting in? I mean, even the people that are coming in are being abused. So the, the, the illegal immigrants that are coming across the border are getting murdered and raped and, and robbed and all these kinds of things. Well, if that's happening to them, those people are coming with them. See what I'm saying? So the good people who are getting abused are coming alongside without wanting to the people that are abusing them. So those abusers are coming in too, right? So uh, you hear people talk about this. It's not because they're mostly bad people, but how many bad people do you want to come in, right? Well, effectively, you want zero, right? And so there has to be some way to manage humanely and compassionately letting people come in at a reasonable way, but at the same time, screening out as best you can those who are evil, right? Those who have evil intentions. And one of the things that you might run into if you run into a liberal person and talk to them about these issues is they're going to quote a couple of scriptures to you, which is very interesting to me when non-believers start using scripture uh, to support their position. In fact, President Obama did this famously not too long ago. Um, now, he doesn't use scripture when he talks about abortion. He doesn't use scripture when he talks about gay marriage. But when he talks about immigration, he used scripture. Right? So his scripture was uh, Exodus 22, 21, you know, where we're supposed to take care of the alien among you. Right? Uh, talking about, just like we were talking about illegal aliens, this is talking about alien visitors to your country. The only problem is, he doesn't know, because he doesn't really know the scriptures, I don't think, is that the word there for alien is actually the Hebrew word that means a legal alien. It means someone who has come into the country and set up residence legally. There's a whole other word that means, that's usually translated foreigner, that means a visitor from another country. And so when he used that scripture, he actually was supporting the opposite position. It, the, the scripture's actually saying to the you can't take advantage of these people. They're here on, on legally. That's what it's saying. You, get, you have to take care of these people because they did the right thing. Right? That's, that makes sense. That makes sense as a scripture, right? Don't, don't take advantage of them just because they're not Hebrews. They're here. They're okay. They're here where they're, they're supposed to be here. And so, anyway, so the other problem with the, with the liberal position is they really don't believe in evil. We talked about this in another lesson earlier. The, the existence of evil is a, is a debate that goes on. Conservatives generally believe that evil exists, that there are some people and some things that are classified as evil. Progressives or liberals generally don't believe that. They believe only that people do bad things, but they're not evil, because if they just got a better education or more economic opportunities or, or something changed so that we, you know, so that's why it's our fault. You notice this in the liberal position is often why is this happening? Because we Americans did something wrong. You know, the Palestinians are shooting rockets into Israel because America isn't supporting their their cause properly, or you know that person.
person, you know, killed a bunch of people because we're Islamophobes. Or, you know, what it, it's always comes back to we're not giving them the right environment to, to reach their potential, so they're acting out, and that's our fault. Conservatives don't usually think that way. They think everybody should be responsible for themselves. That's a more general conservative position. And so they're more likely to say, if you did something wrong, it's because there's something wrong with you. And that's evil. Something evil is controlling you, or you're choosing to do evil, whatever the deal is. So that idea on the left lends it to open borders approach because they say everybody would be good if we just have a better system, a better opportunity, a better whatever, better they think it needs, better education, whatever it needs to be, everyone would be good. That's a humanistic view, right? If we can humanly become better at making people feel better about themselves, then they'll be better. And that's a view that has failed historically over and over and over again. But if you judge everything by intentions, then it doesn't matter what the reality on the ground says. And this, this is a typical liberal perspective. Everything's judged on its intentions, on what it's intended to do, not on what it actually has to happen. Right? So the conservatives are much more pragmatic generally, and they look at what are the outcomes of the policy. Of the, I don't care what your intentions were when you made the policy, what happened when you made the policy. So that, that's a very clear distinction between a progressive liberal position and a more conservative position. Okay. So he says, <coughs> first, government needs to acknowledge its failure. And uh, it gives me a little bit of hope uh, in the current upcoming administration that there's been some talk about the failure of government. We haven't really heard that up till now. So usually the best starting place whenever you have a problem <coughs> is to acknowledge the problem. So if we can at least acknowledge the problem, we have a failed immigration system, then we can move forward. He then goes on to talk about what about the, that's the, that's the government's part, and they need to fix their system, okay? And so whether you agree with building a wall or whether you, you know, whatever the system they think they're going to fix is going to be, that's another, a different question, you know, how do you fix it? But at least you recognize it needs fixing, okay? That's at least a good starting point. Then he goes on to talk about what the immigrant should do, and he says, you know, th it's reasonable to make a pathway to success. Um, now, ultra-conservatives typically see that as what they call amnesty, which is actually we've done a couple times in history, two or three times before. We've said, okay, everybody who's already here and who's, who's already living here and your family's here and you've got a house and all these kind of things, even though you didn't do it right, we're just going to wipe that out and let you be a citizen and everything's going to be okay. And we've done that two or three times. Last time was, I think it was early in Reagan's term. <coughs> um, but what's happened is because that policy hasn't worked because what that did was it told everybody going forward, that'll probably happen again, right? We're not going to enforce the laws. We're going to give everybody amnesty every 10 or 20 years. And therefore, they just kept coming, expecting the next amnesty to come. So the older conservatives have rebelled against that, said, can't give another amnesty. But the problem is that they're saying amnesty, they mean any way for them to stay. And that doesn't, that's not amnesty in my opinion. And the author agrees with me in this case. 
Um, amnesty means you don't make them pay at all. Uh, a pathway means you give them a way to succeed. And it may cost them something. It may cost them fines or back taxes or paperwork that they have to do or they may have to go through some process. But whatever, whatever it is, we need to make a way for them to succeed. Right? There has to be a way out so they're not stuck. Okay, so that's the, he always he talks about that quite a bit on page two and nine as well. Okay, so the the bottom line is on immigration is it should be a reasonable way for people to come in that's compassionate, humane, and, and achievable, and there should be a firm way to screen who comes in so that we don't let just anybody come in because we know some people not probably not a high percentage but even a low percentage can be a lot of people if there's there's 11 million illegals, which I've heard all kinds of numbers, but that's what I've heard. There's 11 million illegal aliens in the United States right now, and only 1% of them are murderers or rapists. How many is that? Right? It's 110,000. That's a lot. <laughs> okay, so that you get the, the feel for it there, where there has to be some way to screen that out. And so now you hear even recently I heard one of the Trump uh, appointees talking about we're going to focus on illegal aliens that have a criminal record. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? Because that's what the government's supposed to do is protect us from people who have evil intentions. That's that should be reported as a, if someone has a criminal record, that kind of tells you something about their intentions. And if they're here illegally on top of it, we bet that would be a good group of people that probably should have to leave. It at least makes sense. Now what you do with the next you know, millions of people who don't have a criminal record, who are good people, trying to make a living, trying to support their family, doing their best, but they're here illegally, that's a whole new question, right? And he probably has to rethink that, which he seems to be rethinking things now, so we'll see. Okay, so the role of government is to protect the citizenry. You can't protect the citizenry don't know who can come in and out of the country, you must have borders to do that, borders that are secure and able to vet who's coming in and who's going out. Okay, otherwise you'll let anyone come in and then anyone will come in, right? Even if most of them are great people, it only takes a small percentage to really upset things. So that's why it's important. Okay, that's short of my executive review. Any questions about immigration specifically before we move on to the next topic? Yes, sir. Right. There, there has been, you know, there, are, there have been pushback on the idea of better vetting to say, you know, we, we can't do it. But you're hearing other people come forward and say, we can't maybe do everything we want to do, but we can do a lot more than we are doing. Uh, for example, we're going to talk about refugees next, but for example, the refugees coming out of Syria, we could put troops on the ground or people on the ground where they are and make them document where they're from, what they're doing, where they've been. That would at least help us understand who's really coming in and who's really not coming in. How effective will that be? We're not sure. We'll just do our best. Government always is like that. You know, you do the best you can, but at least there'd be something that would help screen out the obvious ones that have some sort of record somewhere.
it's not easy because a lot of places in the world are on good record, so that it's not always easy. Uh, but at least it should be attempted. And you should at least know where they come in, where they're going. So if something happens and then they do something you know, wrong, you know who they are, where they came from, and what's going on. It's a lot of work, right? But it could be a lot easier if our system made more sense. None of these problems are really easy. You know, if they were easy, somebody would figure it out a long time ago. But there are better ways to do it. Yeah. This question would be just a clarification. If two illegal immigrants are here and a child is born, by law, is that child an American citizen? That used to be the case that if you were born in the United States, you were automatically a citizen no matter what your current status was, but that's not long ago true. They changed that law a few years back. Um, but it used to be true, but it's not anymore. And then you had the people coming in just to have babies. All right. They still do that in some ways because if you do it the right way, you can still make it work. Uh, but it doesn't happen automatically the way it used to. In fact, there's a whole there's a whole industry on the West Coast where Chinese mothers come to the United States at the end of their pregnancy and have babies here and register them in the United States so that they can get citizenship. It's not automatic, but it, it lends itself to it so there's a better chance for them to. Yeah, anyway. Um, so we're not just talking about the border of Mexico and Hispanics and all that. It's it's a it's a whole country. The whole country has to deal with these issues. Because you can get across the Canadian border right now, and their their border policy is so loose that a lot of not so good people could get in, and then they could easily get across to our country. So uh, the whole border has to be examined. Right? It's not just the southern border. Yeah. In reference to what we were just saying about children being born here, I think I read in the United States was the only one that was even allowing that that no other country ever allowed that. Yeah, that's true. We, Our policies have been very liberal, you know, very generous, I should say, uh, over the years, and they've tried to tighten up a little bit on some things, but it's still pretty pretty generous. Uh, and it's, you know, there's something to be said. I'm not just pro-American, but I like my country. So it makes a difference in how people are dying. Are people dying trying to get into your country? Are they dying trying to get out of your country? Right. I saw on the news this evening where they did some interviews with some students at a college somewhere in the D.C. area, and they were asking him, who do you think is a more favorable leader, Fidel Castro or, or Trump? And a lot of them said Castro. Well, they obviously are being taught something pretty weird. But, but my answer would be, are people dying to get into Cuba or to get out? People are dying to get out of Cuba. Literally, they're dying trying to get out of Cuba. And people are literally literally dying trying to get into the United States. Doesn't that tell you something? Yeah, anyway. Okay. Any other comments or questions about immigration? It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. What, what can be done about it. Okay, so I'm going to transition to a related topic, and that's refugees. The difference between an immigrant and a refugee 
is a refugee is fleeing some sort of problem. And an immigrant basically isn't. An immigrant's trying to get better employment or get a better living, make a better living or something like that, or just wants to live in a different country. Whereas a refugee is fleeing a war or a natural disaster or some sort of persecution. So that's the difference between those two two kinds of people, right? A refugee is being forced out in some way, and, a, and an immigrant wants out in some way. Okay, so everybody knows about the Statue of Liberty. We've been welcoming refugees for hundreds of years, and hundred over hundred millions of people have come through uh, ref, with refugee status. Okay, uh, right now in the world, it's estimated there's 60 million refugees in the world. Um, nine and a half million of those are Syrians. It's a huge percentage, right? And a third of the total refugees in the world are can be added up between Iraq and Syria. A third. So there's a bunch of refugees. Most, uh, you know, another big percentage is in, in different parts of Africa, where people have been displaced and forced out of their homes for one reason or another. Uh, there's some in South America and in Southeast Asia. The biggest chunk of them is Iraq and Syria. Of course, they've both been in war situations for quite a long time. So we are compassionate, as I mentioned before. The United States lets in more refugees than anybody else in the world. And uh, we've done that to a large degree. We have some problems with this specific situation, though, right? Uh, because these refugees are not being handled don't have the same status as we as we think of refugees in the past. People who fled Europe because of the Nazis or uh, fled China when the when the communists took over and everything, it was pretty evident they were mostly good people with in good intentions in a bad situation. They had to flee, whatever the reason was, persecution, natural disaster, war, something like that. Now we're in a different situation because we're getting people coming out of places that generate terrorism, that have a, a very different worldview than we than we have in the United States in general. Uh, they don't assimilate well. Everybody know what I mean by that. They don't they don't adjust to their new culture. Um, a lot of times they don't want to speak English. They don't want to learn the laws of the land. They don't want to adapt to the, to the tolerance and give and take of our melting pot society and all those kinds of things. So it causes a problem, right? Now, as Christians, uh, Matthew 25 tells us to reach out to the poor and needy, to, you know, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, all those kinds of things. But it also tells us in Matthew 10 to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So on the one hand, we should take care of people in need. On the other hand, we need to be at least have some wisdom and balance in how we do it. Okay? It's not that we shouldn't do it. We should do it. We have to balance compassion and wisdom and the reality on the ground of who we're dealing with to learn how best to serve them and help them, okay? So we're facing right now a huge demand for bringing refugees in, and they come in two categories, even though they're from the same part of the world, and the two categories are Muslims and Christians. There are Christians in the Middle East, and there are Muslims in the Middle East. Now, there's by far more Muslims, right? And most of the Middle East is Muslim. There are far fewer, fewer Christians, but the Christians are being persecuted, whereas the Muslims are just fleeing intolerable situations like war. So 
just a little bit of difference of what's going on. And right now, 96% of the Syrian refugees that are coming here are Muslim, and only 2% are Christian. But take into account that those Muslims that are coming here are coming from an area surrounded by Muslim nations. <coughs> so you would think it'd at least be possible they could have gone to Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or, or some other place where there's no war going on, Iran, you know, somewhere. They could have gone very easily compared to trying to get here or even trying to get to Europe. But they're not. That's not happening. And do you know why? But the refugees are not making it in there. They, they have these, you know, these are statements they're making. They're saying, we don't want them to come in because we don't know which side they were on. We don't know whether they would cause problems in our country. They can't, in other words, they can't vet them. Right? On the other hand, our current administration has been encouraging them to come without vetting. So problems exist. Like There's an unusual demographic involved. There's a lot of young men, single young men, in the group of refugees. There's a, an unusual number proportionately to the normal uh, refugee population. Usually refugees' populations are dominated by women and children because they're the ones that have to get out. Usually the men are either fighting or they're helping recover from the disaster or you know, they're doing something else rather than fleeing whereas most of the families have to get out of the way. Just, they have nothing else they can do. And that's not been the demographic. So there's questions. You know, We don't want to leave out everybody, but do we want to let in everybody? That's the question, right? The same question we have with immigration. So how do we get the ones who really have need and aren't going to bomb us <laughs> and leave out the ones who are going to bomb us? Well, that's a hard question, isn't it? It's a hard question to answer. Because um, we want to do the, the right thing. We want to let in as many as we can. We want to help them as much as we can. They are in a very difficult situation. Probably most of them are great people who have good intentions and just want to get out of the terrible mess they're in and uh, live their life. Right? That's probably true. I don't think that's probably true. The problem is, how do you tell one from the other? How do you tell the one who just wants to get out of there and live their life from the one who's making a way out of there so they can cause a problem. That's the problem. So the question is how do you vet or how do you screen the population so that you're not just letting in a bunch of terror cells along with all the needy people? How do you just the needy people and not all the potential terrorists or real terrorists? We don't know. So that's the, that's the question that's being asked and how to make that happen. The other question is, why aren't we at least getting the Christians out? There aren't any Christian terrorists that have been recorded recently, right? So they're not a threat, right? Well, that's, that's the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be discriminatory. It's just the truth. It's just that's what's happened in the world for the last few years. You hardly see anybody who's not a Muslim doing terror. We're going to talk about terrorists in a minute, but that's true. So why aren't the Christians at least getting out? Because that would be a relatively safe group to put through the process quickly. 
well, the problem is the, the statistics are being, and the people are being kept in UN peacekeeping camps, right? That's where the refugees go first. The UN peacekeeping camps in Turkey or in, in a peaceful part of Syria, which isn't very much, but somewhere nearby, there's these camps set up. Except that the Muslims who go into the camps won't tolerate Christians in the camps. So the Christians have to flee the camps. They can't go to the camps. So they're staying in homes and churches and, and hiding out so they don't get counted as part of the refugee population. And they, they don't have access to any of the usual ways of getting out. And so they get, then they get persecuted by either the ISIS or the Syrian rebels, or whoever it is that has control of their territory. And of course, they're being killed for the, and persecuted in, in that way. So it's a very difficult situation. Uh, he gives some stories that he actually experienced in dealing with some of these people groups, um, specifically Chaldeans, which are one of the Christian groups in that part of the country, world. So it's, it's, a hard, it's a very hard issue to resolve. You know, as Americans, we are compassionate. We want to do the right thing. We want to help people. We want to you know, make a place for people who have needs and is hurting. On the other hand, we don't want to just open the doors naively let everybody in who says they're a refugee. So that's that's a difficult. So we don't want to have a religious test that goes against our our cultural and our constitutional foundation. But we do maybe want to have a violence test. Can we test for people who are most likely to have bring violence with them? I don't know. That there may be a way to do that. You know, to vet them in that way. Can we ascertain if you know if you're if you're a young single guy and you seem fit why aren't you working somewhere why aren't you you know why aren't you part of your cultural change you know what, what's going on how do we recognize you do you have a way of talking about why you're here you know those are hard questions so I'm not, obviously not the person to answer those questions and I don't know if anybody really has answers to those questions but that's where we're at right struggling with those situations and at the same time we're seeing Christians being persecuted in that part of the world at the same time we're seeing refugees coming out in hordes and they seem to be not everything, not all of them seem to be who they say they are. So how do you figure that out? How do you make that work? And you see other countries struggling with this too, Germany and France, places like that struggling with the same issues so one of the things I heard a guy on the news recently say, what we need to do is be, do more proactively on the ground there instead of them bringing them to the United States and trying to figure it out. Let's us go there and try to figure it out so that we screen them at their location rather than at our location. So that's one step that might be helpful. Again, nothing's perfect. Everybody who's ever dealt with the government knows that when you deal with the government, nothing's perfect. Right? So we're going to have to deal with this issue for a while. Uh, that's the way it looks to us now. We want to help our fellow Christians as much as we can, any way we can, but it's a very difficult situation. Okay? Not, not great answers on this issue, right? Uh, any questions about that? Immigration ironically, immigration is simpler than refugees. You'd think it wouldn't be, because historically, we've always let in a lot of refugees, because it was always pretty simple. Hey, they had a tidal wave, so we're going to let a bunch of them in that are hurting, or they had, you know, 
they had to flee persecution or whatever. It always it was always looked so simple. This one isn't simple. Yeah. I I kind of go back to we're in here as Christians talking, so we have a perspective and and we have a a compassion and a point of view. But I go back to what is our nation's responsibility? What's our government's responsibility? What was the first, What was the number one responsibility? Protect your citizens. So with that in mind. You can take the humanitarian type mentality and implement that, but I would rather, I think, I, I've never seen, at least I don't remember, so many refugees having to come to our country when there's, other, when there's issues going on all around the world. We've always gone there to help. We've set up refugee camps. We've protected the people within those camps until the whatever up uproaring right. was, was going on until it and then let people go and back great home examples there's the, i mentioned the tidal wave mm -hmm. uh in uh, southeast asia that that's what we did uh, rwanda when they had their persecutions that's what we did right uh sudan yeah that's what we did so there's lots of examples of what you're talking about why it's so different today i don't know why those are great examples and they worked and those people went back to their homes, went back into the land that they're from, uh, and they the weren't uprooted. What we, what I see coming here is we're bringing a lot of people that really don't want to be part of the culture of America. They don't right. want to they're be Americans, and and that's what I think is it makes it a difficult transition. I think one of the problems is there's no safe way to, to be on the ground where they are. No, there probably isn't. It, it, however, you're going to do it. There's going to be. Um, there's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be loss of life. Uh, so you got to look at, you know, where do you what want do you, that to take place? What are we place? willing to do, right? Yeah, as a nation, what's our first responsibility? The, the obvious thing to do is to set up camps in Egypt and Sudan mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia and places like that, but they won't. See, so what do you do? You can't set them up in Syria. Syria is a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. You can't set them up in Iraq because ISIS still controls huge swaths of it. So what do you do? That's, that's a hard question. So what's happened is a lot of them have moved into Western Europe. They want to come to the United States, just trying to get out of the way. But then who's who? We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a very unusual situation. Okay. So this kind of segues pretty naturally into terrorism. So I mentioned before that most terrorism in the world is, is propagated by Islamic terrorists. Uh, here's some statistics. Um, since 9-11, there have been 28,000 Islamic terrorist attacks worldwide. 28,000 since 2001. 450 out of 452 suicide terrorists have been Islamic. Right? That's 99%. At least 95% of the ongoing wars and violence in the world today are in some way related to Islamic terrorism or Islamic issues. So you hear people say Islam is a, is a religion of peace. It, it makes it tough, right? How do you translate that? Now, some will say, well, there's a lot more peaceful Muslims than there are radical terrorist Muslims, right? And that, that's true. That's true. Much more of the Muslims in the world are not terrorists. Probably a very small percentage. Well, I'll say small. It's estimated about 15% are jihadists or, or extremists or radicals, however you want to say it. But 15% of, I think it's 6 billion, 
a lot of people, right? Um, but why, you know, nobody's doing these kinds of things in the name of Jesus. Nobody's doing these kind of things in the name of Jehovah. Nobody's doing these kinds of things in the name of Buddha. Uh, I mean, but most all of these acts are being done in the name of Allah. Now, I'm not saying it's Allah's fault, whoever he is, but that's the name that's being used. Why is that name being used? Well, the problem, uh, you, you read the section in the, in the book, he'll, he goes into more detail. The problem is in the actual religion itself. Because the religion itself propagates violence to enforce the religion. In fact, Muhammad, the founder of the religion, himself said that, and did, that if people don't receive Islam, then you have to kill them. That's pretty obvious, right? And if you look at the scriptures, he does a whole, a whole series of scriptures. I've seen other books that are more in-depth than that. There, there are whole scriptural passages in the Quran that tell them that tell them, don't be a friend to Jews and Christians. It's okay to lie to them. It's okay to kill them because they're not believers. And I mean that it's actually in their book that these things are appropriate and okay. Um, in in Islam, if you if you go to a country that's not Islamic, the name they call that kind of country a Dar Ulhar. And it literally means battlefield. Whereas Islamic countries are called <coughs> Dar Islam, which means place of peace. So if you're Islamic, you're in, you have peace. If you're not Islamic, you're at war. That they define themselves this way. Okay, so it's pretty clear why that propagates a pretty high percentage, even 15% of the total religious cultural base is a huge percentage. Um, who are willing to propagate what they call jihad, which literally means to fight for Islam. Now, they have all kinds of jihad. There's the jihad of the mouth, which means to talk about to people, jihad of the hand, which means to reach out to people. But the one that most of the jihadists take on is the last one, which is jihad of the sword, which means to attack those who don't believe. The other thing that they don't talk about a lot, but their eschatology, everybody know what eschatology means? What, what, how, what's the end game of whatever you believe, right? So, like we believe in the second coming, that Jesus is returning as, a, as the king of kings. They also believe there's a Messiah. They have a Messiah in their belief system. But their Messiah only comes when the world is in total chaos. That's how they believe he's coming. When the world is in total chaos, then the Messiah comes. So it's to their best interest, if they want the Messiah to come, to bring the world into total chaos. Right? So you see how it makes sense that they're going to go to heaven because they're building, making more and more chaos in the world. That's why, that's why their system works that way. So it's calling Islam a, a religion of peace, even though the word Islam means a kind of peace. That's the way they talk about it. It's only peace in the sense that it's peace if everybody believes that. As long as somebody else believes something else, there's no peace. As soon as everybody believes in Islam, then of course the whole world's at peace. That's how they think of it. Okay. The other thing to know is that there's no separation between church and state. In Islam, Islam is total. It's, it's the government, it's the, it's the military, it's the politics, it's the legal system. The whole culture is dominated by the belief system of, of their religious foundation. 
And we like our religious foundation to influence our culture, to influence things we want because we believe it's good. But theirs doesn't influence it. It controls it, right? Now, you know, there are some Christians who believe that we should have Christian states uh, like they did in Rome when they proclaimed it a Rome, the Roman Christian state and make everyone need to be a Christian, you know, culturally. That does not work, just to let you know. Um, we're not here to make Christian states. We're here to, to make Christian, the kingdom of God, evident in states, in places, in people's hearts, in the world, in culture. But we're not here to control people. You can't, you can't make people get saved. Can you? Can you? Can you point a gun at somebody and say, get saved? Does it work? No. But, but Muslims believe it does work. They will point a gun at you and say, are you Muslim? And if you say yes, then okay. If you say no, then bang. So they're, they're, if, you, if you'll bow down, they don't care what you're going on in your head as long as you submit. So that's the difference in the way the two religions work. So effectively, um, how do I say this? You know, people come sometimes criticize Christianity because in the Old Testament there were some what appeared to be ethnic cleansing episodes. He mentions this, by the way. He says, for one thing, it only happened in one situation. There was a, there was a seven-year period when they're conquering Canaan, when they are completely purging the, nation, the, the, country, the world, that, that part of the world, of their enemies. Nowhere else in the scriptures does that happen. It's just in that one situation where they're reconquering Canaan. It still sounds bad if you don't know what God's doing and if you don't believe that way. But the other side of the coin is, that was only until Jesus came. When Jesus came, he said, our weapons are not carnal. We don't fight against flesh and blood. In fact, Christians went, became martyrs not by blowing themselves up, but by allowing themselves to be crucified. Right? That's a big difference. So the Old Testament actually called for a separation from the world. They said, we're a peculiar people. We're we're only dealing with ourselves. We're not trying to persecute the world. We're, we're in our nation. We're in our country. We're doing what God wants us to be as an example to the world, but we're not trying to make the world like us. In the New Testament, that switched around. Now we're going out to the world to serve and to save. But we never use the sword to advance the kingdom. Never. Now there's some historical incidents in the Crusades and things like that where people thought they were doing that. But even then, it was not agreed to by people who knew God and knew the scriptures. It, those who knew God knew the scriptures said that was wrong. Only the establishment that was trying to enforce their power made it work. Okay, so it was obviously wrong, and it's, it's obviously not thought of well. If someone, when someone went to a federal building and blew it up and said they were doing it for Christ, all Christians condemned it. Whereas if the same thing happens with a Muslim, only a certain percentage will condemn it, and even then not vocally. Not because Some of them may because they're afraid, but also because it's kind of built into their understanding how the world works based on their religious views. The other thing to notice is the Quran doesn't have a New Testament. They're still in the Old Testament in their view. That's how it works for them. They, they never got a New Testament. Their Messiah never came still coming the first time. We're still looking for the first to come for the Messiah. Our Messiah came and changed the world. 
change our way of thinking, change how we do things. And we're just looking for him to return. Right? So the victorious church, not a church in chaos. Okay. So our Western political correctness tends to distract us from understanding these issues. Because we don't want to say Islam is bad. We don't want to criticize a whole people group because they have a religious view. I understand that. And we're not trying to do that. But the reality is over 90% of the acts of terror are done by Islamic extremists, by Islamic radicals. That's the truth. That's real on the ground. It's not a matter of intentions or feeling good or making them feel good about themselves. That's really what's happening. So it's up to either us or the Muslim moderates or, or somebody has to make that change because right now that's the reality. That's what's happening in the world today. Okay? The is Islam is trying to establish a caliphate. Caliphate means the success of Muhammad, success of Muhammad's control. In the middle of the Dark Ages, the Muslim religion, the Islam, controlled a big part of the world, a big part of the middle of the world. Um, three different continents were touched. Huge swath of the world around the Middle East and where the stands, you know, all the countries in it stand all that part of the world and part over through Greece and all, all through there was controlled uh, for a long time it was the Ottoman Empire and different, the different times in history that part of the world was controlled by Islam now it's not only it's still a significant part of the world but not nearly as much but they still want to restore that the Muslim Brotherhood you may have heard of that was established in Egypt a few years ago their expressed intent is to establish a new caliphate control, controlling territory, controlling the world. Even ISIS, it's mean, the first two letters in ISIS, IS, are Islamic State. That's a term that means caliphate. It's the same, same issue. They just have different te technique for doing it. Um, there are 22 countries in the Arab states. There's 40 nations in the world that are considered Muslim. They're predominantly Muslim. These countries represent one of the ones who have the worst track record on human rights women's rights, uh, on a whole host of issues. I mean, you hear, it's incredible to me to listen to some liberal progressives talk about, well, we should allow Sharia law, all these kinds of things. Sharia law would make you wear a burqa, you know? You're not going to get, there's no feminists in Muslims, right? There's none. So... I hear them talking, you hear women saying these things. I say, if you just go there and observe their culture and, their, and how their religion works for women, you would be disgusted. It, it's horrible. I mean, they just recently had them a show come on television, I forget, in Morocco or someplace like that, where they were teaching women how to apply makeup to cover up domestic abuse on TV. Here's how you cover up the bruises and the, and the... Okay, so when I see progressive liberal women saying we need to be tolerant of these things, and, and, you know, th these are the same people who, if you find out you're gay, they take you on top of a building and throw you off the roof. I mean, I don't get why they're so okay with that. So, anyway. So, what do we do? I'm getting a little afield first thing we don't want to do is not be intimidated to say and label things properly. You hear, you see political correctness is you can't say Islamic 
anything Islamic because then you're an Islamic phobe. Well, I'm not scared of Islamists. I'm scared of Islamic jihadists, right? Because they actually blow people up. You know, so you can't. You don't have to be an Islamic phobe to say that was Islamic extremism, that was Islamic radicalism, Islamic terrorism. Those are real things. They should be identified and labeled. And you shouldn't be afraid to do that. It, those are evil. I'm not saying all Muslims are evil. I'm saying that part of it's evil. And I think if you get them to admit it, they might say it too, although I'm not sure. Because their religion actually has this built in. So they might think, well, they're just doing it. They're just more radical than I am. I don't know how they really feel about it because I've never got one to open up to me, at least, uh, how they really feel. Probably a lot of them now don't think that's right. But how do you express that if your religion supports it? Right? How do you how do you come against it as a moderate? I used to say, why aren't moderate Muslims standing up and, and making a change? Well, maybe they can't because their actual religion supports it. And if the religion supports it, how do you demand that it change? You can demand they change their scriptures? I mean, what are you gonna do? You can see they're kind of stuck. So the best thing for them is what? Become Christians. <laughs> That's what I think. Okay. So secondly, um, be firm and accurately speak the truth in love. We're not trying to accuse everyone of being bad just because they're Muslim. But there are bad Muslims. It's obvious. Even they know it, even if they won't admit it. So don't be afraid to say the truth in love. You're not trying to be critical of them unless they're that. But if they are that, you're probably not talking to them anyway. Third, Care about those who are deceived. Really care about the people you're talking to. If they're Muslim, they've got a problem. They're, they're, they're in trouble, right? They're, they're in a difficult situation. They may want to do the right thing, but how do they do the right thing? You know, they went to mosque and they heard, they heard these things talked about, but they can't say anything because it would go against the tenets of their religion. How do they get out of that? You know, so ministry to deceived people is a big part of Christian work getting them delivered, right? Okay, so care about them. Fourth, speak up. Tell your political leaders that you want a reality check. You know, we're not worried about how they feel about what we're saying. We're worried about saying the right thing and what's true. And finally, fast and pray. Pray. Fast and pray, because our world needs help. As usual help but some of these issues are pretty pretty tough and we need to be ready to help in every way we can including prayer Amen. okay any questions or comments or concerns about terrorism and Islam so it's too cut and dried it's, everybody agrees with everything I said or you don't want to don't want to blow up right here. So, oh, there's one. I don't know if you recall, but Cindy Jacobs gave a prophetic word. It might have been as much as like five or six years ago that if we didn't respond to what the Lord was calling us to do at that point with regard to Christianity and praying for the world, that there would be an, an influx of Muslims that would uh, come against the Christian nation, Christian people and that there would be a war. Now, the interesting dynamic to that fact is, from my viewpoint, 
is prophecy as Bishop has spoken it is conditional but then there's also prophecy that is given worldwide by a worldwide prophet that is not adjustable because it's the word of the Lord in fact but I also believe in these situations like when you're talking about the prayer that prayer makes a huge difference like where we are right now with President Trump and where we're going forward in America I believe that our prayers have brought fruit I believe there have been some changes that have happened but now we have some new agendas a shift in which we have to take um, I don't want to use the word aggressive but a more assertive role in prayer even still yet right. that we don't get weary and well-doing and don't stop now right. we're in a good place let's move keep move forward yeah we Trump is not the Messiah no he's so, not the Messiah uh, and he'll he'll do what he's he, a human he'll do what he thinks is right i think but yeah. what he thinks is right may never may not be right now it's it's encouraging to see so far who he's surrounding himself with because so far he's surrounding himself with a lot of believers that's encouraging not necessarily good i mean everybody thought george bush was a tongue-talking christian yet he made a lot of mistakes so you know i'm not sure what that's going to mean going forward but i agree with you this is not a time to stop praying. This is a time to pray harder, if anything, uh, that our nation can respond to whatever God wants, no matter who's in office. Um, so the fact that we have somebody in office that you may have voted for, um, you know, I tell people my candidate didn't make it because they weren't in the final. <laughs> but, uh, but some candidate made it, at least as a candidate whose platform we can generally agree with whether we like him or not. So that's, that's at least helpful. But at the same time, man, we can't stop praying. You know, uh, our nation still needs a lot of help. And some of these issues are, you know, you talk about the prophecy about, you know, Muslim as a war and everything. In effect, that's happening now. I mean, they just changed their tactics. You know, they couldn't get any airplanes flying the buildings anymore, so they, they did other things. Now they're doing over the internet radicalization of young men so that they run people over with cars and stab them with knives. Well, you know, it's just another form of war. So. Any other comments or questions? I just think it's it's the, the best hour for the church. It's our finest hour to really shine. We've been, we've been pressing into the Lord for signs and wonders and miracles, and these are the signs, wonders, and miracles that we'll see is the, the transformation of people's hearts and lives. Uh, to take a culture that completely doesn't understand about the God we serve and in, introduce them into that life is, and, is and our finest sort of the hour. the side of it. You know, having all these refugees come in, would get a great chance to expose them to the gospel that they probably wouldn't have gotten in Syria or Iraq. But although I hear there's great revival starting there as yeah. well, but you know the idea of getting the gospel shared with them in Wisconsin or Texas or someplace is much higher uh, probability. But um, it, it's you know it's, I had a f I have friends who are apostles and prophets and things like that, so. I remember one of them saying he actually hoped in a way that Hillary would get elected because it would put more pressure on the church to respond spiritually, you know, because the persecution would be more intense uh, or the difficulties would be more intense. 
I don't know if I ever want to pray for persecution, though. So even though it might be what God has to do to get our attention, I'd much rather pay attention than have to have him give, get my attention. Well, I, I'd it doesn't like always to, work out, but that's I'd what like I want. I'd like to say that's why the God's woken the church up in these last few years, that he would right. say the church and, had to wake up at the And it's have. interesting that through two Obama elections, it appeared the church kind of slept through those. And, uh, I mean, I remember talking to Judge Sheets, and he, he was so frustrated in the last election because he said the church did not turn out. Well, whether they would have elected him or not, they should have turned out, right? Whether you wanted him to be elected or not be elected, you need to vote. But this time, this is the highest percentage of evangelical Christians who ever turned out for a national election. So at least the church engaged. You know, that, that's, that's at least encouraging on its own, whether you think that the right person got elected or not. That's a whole different subject. But uh, at least the church engaged. Uh, I think of the word that Pastor Jane has brought about traction. And that's what we're getting. We're getting traction. Traction advances you. When you get traction, you begin to move and you begin to advance. You gain and momentum. Yeah, and you gain momentum. And that's, encouragement and that's what we got to focus that, on. That can work as long as you keep it going. questions and comments about anything we've talked about in the whole series of anything about politics or anything? It doesn't have to be terrorism. Yes. Right here. Through the bill. I think I would just like to say that as we're talking about this, and as I've heard other people talk about it and talk to other people about it, there's a general sense of fear and there's a feeling of uh, unsafeness and that uh, even the goal of our government is to protect, but we don't really feel protected. So the truth for, from that process is uh, the protection that we're going to receive is divine protection. Right. And we need to understand that as the process continues along, that again, it is a spiritual war. And that, that there truly is supernatural protection to be had. Now, I don't know if you'll remember um, the gentleman who used to come to our conferences that was a uh, an agent. I forget his Anyway, I don't know his name. But anyway, the long and short of it is he was telling a story of someone who landed in Africa. And as they were driving out of um, that main city of Africa that's so dangerous, someone was following them. And the car broke down. And this particular person that was following them was going to try to kill them. And as they reached up to, um, the person was working on the car, as they reached up with a tool to kill this individual, the person who was going to kill them froze. The Holy Spirit just caused them to freeze. And the individual was then got back into the car with his wife, and they drove off. And as they were driving off, that person was still frozen in that position. It might still be there. Yeah, it might be. So... <laughs> I'm just saying that a part of the supernatural that we are needing to shift into is this supernatural protection right. of God. And part of the problem with this election was that it was so, so much animosity that each side demonized the other side. And so that set up a, the proposition, whoever won, the other side was going to be devastated. And uh, that happened. It would happen either way. 
whichever side won because they, everyone is demonizing each other so much that you thought you know the world would come to an end if your candidate didn't win. And it's not. That's not what's bringing the world to an end. Jesus is bringing the world to an end. <laughs> yeah, not, not the next president. So, um, so no matter who you supported, no matter what you think about the current president-elect, it's just going to be another four years of battle that's where we're at as a church. We're, we're at war with the evil, the cultural evil, the personal evil. We're at war to defeat the enemy. We're not at war against Republicans or Democrats. We're at war against the enemy. And so it really, in one way, it really doesn't matter from the church's perspective who's in power. The church grew up in the Roman Empire. It was born and grew up in the Roman Empire where there was no religious freedom, no freedom of speech, <laughs> There was dicta, dicta, dictators all the time and perse huge persecution. And that's how the church grew to dominate the culture. So how better should we be able to do now? Right. Yeah. Working with the government, I deal with people living in fear on a regular basis. And I actually see it in our church sometimes. People will often come to us and ask, you know, who should we vote for, this or that. And you just see this fear coming over your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and it's so grievous. You know, the Bible says, be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Yet it also says in several places, be strong and of good courage. It takes a lot of courage to face the things that are going on in our government right now. And we as Christians have to be the standard bearers. We have to lift the scepter of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Right. And we have to do that with courage. And the courage comes from the Lord. And it's that's not why fear. we're presenting this material is to help you understand the biblical perspective on these issues instead of the Republican or Democratic perspective. We're trying to give you the biblical perspective. Sometimes it agrees with one party or the other more than or not. That doesn't matter. It's what does the Bible say? Okay, so if the Bible says it, it's true, no matter who else says it or doesn't say it. Any other comments or questions? Right here? We're going to probably wrap it up after this one. Um, this question right here is a little bit of clarification as well. Um, it helps me to know how to pray. But in doing some certification, it came out during the certification that there are cities in the United States that are called safe cities whereas sanctuary cities sanctuary cities whereas if an immigrant or an illegal alien can get to that city they can receive um, benefits from our government welfare they can work and things won't go against them as far as being driven away from this society um, what it's have anything this administration said anything because they, they the last administration kind of snuck those things in so what is going on now? Is that well, still happening? Well, the administration happen hasn't addressed sanctuary cities directly, but they have indirectly, in that they've made a, they've said they're going to pursue a, uh, deportation of illegal aliens with criminal records. Some of the cities, like for instance Chicago, which is one of the cities, said they won't cooperate with the federal government in, in fulfilling that. So then that's where the tension starts, right? So what is the federal government going to do? Well, in the 
current administrations, because it's in more or less agreement with the idea, they've done nothing. The next administration isn't going to be in agreement with the idea. So what will they do? I don't know. But they have options. They can withhold funding, uh, which is a usual thing the Fed does to, to enforce its will. Um, they, could, they could cause all kinds of mischief for the city if they decided it was worth doing. Uh, so I don't know. But they haven't addressed the issue of sanctuary cities directly, but they have indirectly so far. And obviously, they're not in favor of 